You're listening to Power and Public Space, a co-production of Drawing Matter and the Architecture Foundation. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. London's Dalston Eastern Curve Garden began as a meanwhile scheme that was a centerpiece of a broader design initiative called Making Space in Dalston. It was designed through a collaboration between Muff Art and Architecture and the landscape architects J&L Gibbons, who converted this abandoned section of a railway into a productive garden and urban forest, becoming an amenity for education and escape. But over the past decade, it's embedded itself in the center of one of the city's most rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods. And it's become an act of resistance against commercially driven development, reimagining the site instead as a kind of communal oasis. In this episode, Liza Fior, a director at Muff, tells the story of how the Curve Garden came to be this enduring public space. Fior has revisited the garden with students in recent years to analyze and draw the ways in which it's being used. And in our conversation, she discusses how drawing has affected her understanding of the Curve Garden today, as well as how this landmark project could help inform new briefs for public space. All right, so here it is, Liza Fior on the Dalston Eastern Curve Garden. I want to start um, this this uh, conversation with a caveat is that, that I am just one voice because not only um, was Muff's and involvement uh, collaboration with um, Jo Gibbons and her practice, JNL Gibbons, but it was also um, a significant collaboration with others, with residents, with local cultural organisations, with local traders, with other practices such as exist, as um, led by Nick Henninger, with organisations such as the Barbican and, and Hackney Council who own half the site. So just wanted to start with that caveat that my, I am but one author um, with one take on it. Um, I think it can, as you, as you say, um, that it could be seen as this act of resistance, but it was also perhaps can be seen as a counter proposal. So I won't go into the detail, but there was a master plan linked to the new station at Dawson Junction, the naming of that site as a transport interchange, the building of a concrete raft, which cost many millions, and that in turn, uh, requiring, justifying one of the earliest of the mixed-use developments linked to a station. And I think that this work that we did could be described as a counterpart to that grand visioning from afar. Um, and as such, our methodology was, one, value what's there. Second, nurture the possible once you've understood what, what is there, and only last to define what's missing. And that could be really seen as the opposite of looking at a place and, and seeing nothing there. You know, almost looking at a location as if it, if it is a brownfield and projecting onto it um, an alternative reality. So how do you actually undertake that first step you described of valuing what's there? So to do that first step, the value what's there, um, we undertook mapping, uh, which both un- un- identified um, and celebrated uh, 
organizations and activities which which hadn't been recognized as being present you know when this new um vision was projected onto Dalston, but also um underinvested in and perhaps um uh, unseen uh, spaces, communal spaces, public spaces, spaces of um, possibility. And so, you know, the drawings get thicker and, and the map, the act of mapping, of describing what's there, then can describe what could be there when you bring activity and place together and space together. And because the mapping was based on interviews, it was a means to bring into the same room those who were invested in Dalston rather than those who might be coming to invest or be rather than investors. And so out of those discussions came 76 projects, 76 projects for spaces with community use, community and cultural use. One of those was, was the Eastern Curve, um, a disused railway line which curves away from, to the east, um, Dawson Lane. And the idea that that could be the missing, missing garden because Dawson was a place without green space. Um, it was one of the justifications for or one of the underpinning of the new development. And this was um, the idea that if you had a discontinuous park of fragments, that this could be, this garden could be the center of that. It sounds like what you're describing is that through this process of drawing and mapping, you're allowing for what's been referred to as a, a localist approach to design to take shape. So this idea of localism is essentially about empowering local communities to shape their own neighborhoods. And it really is at the heart of the Curve Garden and the broader Making Space in Dalston project, which you just described. So this process of mapping becomes collaborative and, as you say, allows members of the community to situate themselves within their neighborhoods and understand the degree to which they can participate in a way as designers themselves? The drawing allows people to describe themselves and what they do. And as you say, it's located spatially in a place. And by doing so, the drawing expands the client because suddenly, so perhaps rather than it makes them designers, it um, identifies them as stakeholders. The drawing, the map holds our stakeholders. Our client has expanded. Um, and it also then, when we invite the people who have described themselves and the ways that they have invested in a place together in a room, we, and we recognize that we should be shouted at because we have a power, we have a degree of power, which we haven't necessarily earned through the set sort of sweat equity of, you know, being part of that place as community organisers. So the map becomes live because the people are in the room and some of them are shouting. 
then perhaps what was so successful was that together, and it was, um, you know, I'd like to have a, a shout out for Ava Herr, who's now in Hamburg, that we did it in a very, a step-by-step way of meeting and meeting again, talking, repeating, and working things through to come to the priority spaces. And one of those was the garden. And the garden, in a sense, becomes a bit like that transformation again, where the map identifies who's there, they enter a room together, and they we you know argued and worked it through. Um, and the garden now, which is a garden anyone can attend, is a garden that has hosted other meetings. So the garden, the drawing became a space, i.e. the rooms where we met. And in turn, the garden has become a place where, like the map, very different individuals have been able to meet and articulate what they do and create shared projects from it. It's a kind of a thought of that relationship between the space of the drawing, the space of the room, the space that you have then designed, which actually holds some of the original properties of that first map, i.e. the success of the garden is that it's a place for more than one thing to happen at a time. It's a place with multiple identities, uh, complex programming, a place that if you look closely at the map, you'll see Hackney Young Carers and um, some radical galleries occupying the same space. And similarly, the garden um, has both a mixed economy, a mixed ecology and a very mixed set of users. Building on this point, I wanted to ask you about the way that you are revisiting the garden in your teaching by encouraging your students to literally draw out the ways in which the space is used in the present. So if you're talking about, first of all, the map is a certain type of space of mediation or negotiation that then translates into the garden itself. What we're talking about now is yet another translation where we're analyzing the garden through a series of drawings. And I wanted to understand how drawing has affected the way that you see and understand the curve garden today. I think um, these post-occupancy drawings, which uh, can utilize both the hard line of, um, you know, the lines of ownership, which are easily understood, and then give status to use, uh, capture both a moment in time, but also can capture new priorities, new emphasis, um, a, a record of what worked and what didn't work, what was augmented. And the student drawings um, came from a, a seminar at Central St. Martins called, called uh, Not a Clean Slate. And the idea that students both bring their own experiences um, to study, that, that, and, that uh, expertise in architecture doesn't start on day one of studies because architecture has been experienced, but also um, just the idea of understanding the extended 
building, the extended impact of um, an institution and also use over time. That, well, that's not a very boring long answer, isn't it? But yeah, no, I, no, I, I think I think yeah, I think I think the best simplest answer to that in terms of the not the not clean slate seminar, in, the students give equal status to built fabric and use. So it's interesting that in this project you're describing not a clean slate, which is essentially, as you said, a post occupancy analysis. You're you're learning more about the site. And potentially in a way that throws up more questions about it, how it is used and how it could be used. And it's the same with this initial process of mapping the neighborhood that you engaged in as well. And you've written elsewhere about the role of doubt in the practice that Muff is undertaking, where there's a specific kind of standpoint, which is very much to do with the kind of worrying that the architect undertakes on behalf of the communities that she's designing for. And to be clear, it's not the kind of worrying or doubt that's born out of ignorance. It's a kind of doubt that's born out of knowledge, knowledge of a space and a neighborhood that you're designing for. And so my question in this light is how, how do you design in a state of doubt without losing the confidence of the people that you're designing for? Number one, we did expand the client, so we had a lot of expertise that was being brought to it. We had a very limited budget, so we had to make priorities. And um, the priorities were to have enough trees, um, to have, have the basics that a community garden might you know, might never, never be added to have the um, accessible ramp, compliant ramp that could take all visitors down from the top to the bottom, to have a big roof because people like to be outside, but it rains a lot in English summers, to have water and um, for WCs to be able to be plumbed in. So there was a degree of establishing essentials and then making, you know, the space for doubt is also the space for inhabitation and the garden in some ways looks very different to what we first put there, partly because it's been so popular, partly for the energy that's been put into it and for other elements that a stage went in. Now there's you know, a wonderful space behind the stage, a slightly more secluded area. So you could say the space for doubt is the space for the unknown. And it's thinking about the armature and also going back to other successful moth projects that by giving a degree of precision rather than the fantasy of endless flexibility is it's the precision such as the choice that was made to have a huge table um, because that's how many people that we thought should be able to sit together at one time, is that you leave, um, you leave enough you leave enough for others to then appropriate and use differently in the future. So the Curve Garden is, of course, unique to its context, and it can't be reproduced. But 
How, in your view, could it inform more conventional briefs for public space? Um, I think it could usefully do that if we um, we actually supplied uh, a timesheet of just how much time it takes, and and recognizing that communities don't just sort of appear, and that in the case of Dawson has its own rich history of community organizing. Um, but also uh, anger is a form of commitment and there were some very angry residents. There was a lot of assets. I think one could learn from, you know, that had already been lost. So when we said value, what's there? Important spaces such as the Four Aces Club had already been lost. And I, I, I kind of question, given the new London plan, whether they would be now. Um, so, so I think in terms of what the learning is, it is, is just the amount of time it takes. But as a methodology, it is one that we've used again. So from recognising that to map is to have a live document and to find ways that those that put themselves on the map can then come together to recognise that co-planting is powerful. Liza, thank you so much for your time. Okay. You're welcome. <laughs> Did that, do you think, think that's... Power in Public Space is a co-production of Drawing Matter and the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I make the show. Check out the other episodes in this series, which are all online and ready to stream wherever you're hearing this now. If you like the show, leave a rating on iTunes, and thanks for listening.